MFs, welcome back. Hustle like you broke. It is July. We have been home since March. Love to say things are getting better out there, but I have no reason to believe that's the case. States that have started opening up are shutting down again. Where I'm located in the Northeast, things seem to be leveling out mercifully, but cases across the South, Southwest, into the West Coast seem to be surging. We said we weren't going to be political on this post back in the beginning, but I guess those days have long since passed, and I'm increasingly of the opinion that this being an election year, those of us that have a platform and a belief system should be using them. I don't speak for my guests. I don't speak for our guests, excuse me. I don't speak for my co-hosts. They speak for themselves. My opinion are my own. I think it's important to be upfront about that. I don't want ever for them to be painted into a corner for something that I have said. And I have no problem with them disagreeing with the things that I say. But I've been thinking for a long time that there are those who are taking this virus seriously and then there are Republicans. And increasingly, more and more Republicans are coming around to the fact that this thing is touching all of us. It is not a hoax. It is not some democratic smokescreen to get dear leader out of office. It's a real thing that's affecting real people more and more. So first and foremost, the most important message that I want to say again and again and again is when you are in public, and you are in proximity to other people, wear a fucking mask, please. Just wear a fucking mask. We've seen protests across this country. And for the most part, we are not seeing surges in Minnesota. We are not seeing surges in Boston where I am. We are not seeing surges in cities and states where some of the biggest mass gatherings have happened because those people were wearing masks. They were being responsible in their protesting. On the other hand, we are seeing states opening up and hosting mass gatherings where nobody's wearing masks and the cases are coming around. And I can't say exactly what the science is behind any of this. this. These new terms like super spreader, the concept that Kyle and I like to debate in terms of spikes. The reality is Kyle's not with us today, I'm sorry to say. And I'm sure we could have a spirited discussion about whether or not what we're seeing is a surge or a spike, or it's just an increase in testing as he very accurately points out time and again that in the absence of controls, without knowing all the variables, in the absence of adequate testing, there is no way to properly, specifically identify what that spike may be. But at the same time, hospital beds are filling up 
faster now in some places than they were in the beginning. And it's not getting better. And it's not going to get better. Not until we all start taking this more seriously. You know, in New Zealand, they were down to zero cases. Zero. And then a crazy thing happened. I don't have all the, the details, but there was a funeral. And a family flew in from the UK. And they were let through immigration. Somebody felt bad, said, let these people through. Let them come in. It's a somber time. They're going to a funeral. 20 cases. 20 have popped up already because of that one singular event. country that was down to zero is now working to contain it. I hope they can. I hope they will. I'm sure they're going to do it better than we have because they've already dealt with it once. And I'm hopeful for them. And I think that's a good example of exactly how quickly this thing can happen and exactly why we all need to be taking it more seriously. Now, I'm jumping around a bit. As I said, it's the beginning of July. I just came back from a few days visiting my family, actually. And they live in the Berkshire Hills, which is about three hours west of Boston, about three hours north of Manhattan. It's a cultural area. In the summer times especially, film, theater festival, symphony, one of the great amphitheaters in the country, the Shed at Tanglewood, ballet, arts, authors, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Emily Dickinson, all coming out of this area. It's a very cultural, educated area. It is usually packed to the gills this time of year, which made it very strange for me driving through and seeing it deserted because that's the world we live in and that's what's happening right now. I was heartened to see that there are Black Lives Matter signs all up and down the region, which I appreciate more now than ever in light of Dear Leader's recent statement that Black Lives Matter is a symbol of hate, something he won't say about the white supremacists that have become louder and louder in recent weeks. My father was telling me that every Friday night in town, they hold a vigil. I grew up in a town of only 7,000 people. It's in a valley. It's not a big area. But every Friday night, they've been holding this vigil. Now, my father, he's a strong man, physically, mentally, intellectually. And he says that at this vigil, each Friday evening, when the sun goes down, everybody takes a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And every week, almost everyone there sobs and cries together, thinking about the gravity of the world we live in, the situation we're dealing with, not just with the virus, obviously in terms of race relations being at an all-time, I don't know, low? Is it though? Actually, I'm not even sure if I, I can own that, but at least it's being talked about, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. I've said a number of times that 
the larger pandemic that we're dealing with isn't just a virus. It's just a matter of ignorance. Ignorance is the true pandemic because it abounds nationwide, worldwide, and it's something we need to overcome. And I was thinking about what my father said and this idea of taking a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I mean, I, I, frankly, it makes me want to cry just thinking about it. And he said the craziest thing about it is you get about three minutes in and you realize kneeling for that long isn't natural. It actually is physically taxing on the body to do, which just makes the whole situation, George Floyd and others, that just more crazy to consider my mind. But by the time this episode airs, we'll be about probably 10 days removed from the 4th of July. That's typically our cycle, a week to 10 days. And I hope that it will have been safe for all of you out there. I hope that you will have had a good time. You will have been able to enjoy your holiday weekend, but in a way that does not cause further spreading of this virus in a way that does not make things worse. I hope we do not see more surging than we had after Memorial Weekend, because we're still dealing with that. And in the concert industry in particular, I'm glad to see there are going to be very few events, although I did hear about a couple in Texas. I do know just the other day, an artist that I actually did a tour with a couple years back, Chase Rice, did a show in Nashville, and I don't know what he and his team were thinking. There was no distancing. There were about a 1,000 people in attendance, and he got crucified for it. Honestly, I'm glad. I'm glad that the industry is responding this way. I'm glad that his next event will be a drive-in concept. I see that Vanilla Ice, of all artists, is actually going to be hosting a show for 2,500 people over the weekend. What's his, what was his song? Stop, Collaborate, and Listen? Something like that? Do I have that right? I'm not sure he's doing any of those things right now, but I hope things don't get worse before they get better, but I fear they will. Again, record cases across the Southwest, Arizona, Texas, California. Which makes me think I should introduce my good brother Banks to the program. How are you today, sir? I am back to sheltering in place, trying to remain safe and healthy in my domicile with my family. Now, the notion that numbers are escalating in California, though, that defies my logic that there are only two types of people left in this country, those that take this seriously, and the Republicans, because California is one of the most liberal states in the union, as I thought. Am I wrong? What, what, what is going on out there? Uh, Californians, they are liberal, but they are also entitled. <laughs> as soon as restaurants, as soon as beaches, as soon as bars were announced that they were opening, people flocked to them in droves. I mean, it was 
unreal to see how many people could not wait to go to the beach, to go to a bar, to sit down in a restaurant and dine in. That's what we're dealing with here in California, specifically Southern California. Uh, it was people going back in as if business, you know, was usual. I mean, you see the waiters, you see the bartenders, you see all those people with masks, but people walking up to sit down in a restaurant, no mask. You see a lot of restaurants and bars not adhering to the guidelines with social distancing and temperature checks and all kinds of different things. It was like nothing had ever happened. So that's kind of what we're dealing with here in California. I'm sorry to hear that. One state that I was glad to see is not on the list of record cases is Florida, which brings a perfect opportunity to introduce our other co-host, Miss Christine Dallas. Hello, well, how are we today? Doing better here than some places, I guess. Talk to us how things are down there. I mean, it sounds pretty rough. Um, I'm not out there. You know, I didn't change my patterns, but I did know of people that, you know, started going out to restaurants and you could see much more activity. This week, though, you don't see that. Last week, definitely. This week, it's kind of somber and I don't know if everybody's out of town because of the, uh, you know, impending yeah, Independence Day. But um, no, they're shutting down the beaches for the holiday, for, for the weekend. They Then the next county up is now shutting down beaches so that they don't have anybody traveling between the areas. Um, it's severe. The hospitals are starting to get to capacity. Jackson, the number one trauma center, you know, if one of the top five in the country, they're now, you know, bringing, they're not doing any elective surgery. They're minimizing their entries. Who comes in? It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, so, you know, we're having like this week, been a lot of birthday parties in my family and we're all just looking at each other, <laughs> the same four phases, but we're trying to make the best of it, you know? Um, because it's not worth it. It's not worth exposing oneself. Well, I appreciate you keeping yourself and your family safe. I really, truly believe if we are safe, if we are smart, if we wear our fucking masks, if we start taking more proactive measured steps in the right direction, we can and will get to back to work before too much longer. But in the meantime... Lest there was anything else yet to fall, Made in America has recently gone away. That is, in fact, where I think I first collaborated with today's guest. Austin City Limits is also canceled. And uh, that pretty much puts a wrap on festivals in the U.S. this year. Bonnaroo, of course, rescheduled dates went away last week, two weeks ago, something. And uh, so here we are, all looking for opportunities, hustling away, trying to pivot, trying to do new and different things. In terms of states, going up and down, actually, today's guest resides in the state of Nevada, which is not on the list of record cases, I'm happy to see, in spite of the fact that we've known for some time that the governor there or was it just the mayor of Las Vegas 
might have a few screws loose. Today's guest is actually, as I understand it, born and raised in New York, comes from a family of Broadway actors. I don't have a whole lot on how he got where he is, so we'll certainly open with that. But he is, in many respects, one of the premier, preeminent, biggest production designers in the concert industry. He works with everyone from Shakira to Jay-Z to Drake. He's worked with all of the major sports leagues, NFL, NBA, National Hockey League. He's a part of a number of major festivals. I already mentioned Made in America, Ultra. He works with Tidal. He recently did the Becoming book tour for former First Lady Michelle Obama. He is the owner and or principal of a few different companies, including design firm The Academy, The Farm on the Las Vegas Strip. And we hope to hear him tell us about those as well as a new venture, Mod Pro Services, which has popped up very recently. Please welcome to the program, Patrick Dearson. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me. We're broadcasting live from what's going to be your next coronavirus epicenter. I can assure you of that. Our numbers may not be showing, but uh, give it a minute. It's going to be spicy. And it's our our mayor that uh, has a few screws loose, or our governor, Sisolak, <laughs> uh, um, has a lot of uh, people that don't like him in this state, but I think he's been handling this probably better than most governors around up until this point. I think we'll see what the next few weeks bring because we're about to have a, a very heavy 4th of July weekend. And this is after we've just recently reopened Vegas. And um, not all of the establishments here acted as seriously as some of the leading establishments did. I think it's the best way I can put that. So it's going to get real interesting really quick out here. Are people wearing masks there? Uh, well, one of the things the governor did uh, last week, or this this week, uh, established that that's non-negotiable. Um, you have to wear a mask. There is even even in your own dwellings, if you're having visitors over, you are encouraged to wear a mask if you cannot social distance. And that's he has pushed the importance of this and the severity of it. He has made it non-negotiable. Um, the, the saying now is no shirt, no shoes, no mask, no service. So if you come <laughs> up to a, an establishment without your mask, uh, turn around and go. Um, and, and I think he, he, he did the right thing in that regard because it's taking the onus off of the business owners to have to enforce this. And now it's just law. So you, know, they, you, you can stand there stamping your feet all you want. It's not up to the individual business establishments. And I think we've seen so much of that, um, the, the, the polarity in, in how people feel about that whole mask issue. Um, but yeah, even in my apartment building now, uh, just yesterday, they, they put up signs everywhere where it's just mask required. And we're, we've, we've plastered it all around the entire property. Because uh, I live on the Las Vegas Strip, um, one of the, the few people that actually physically live on the Strip. And... Um, it's a, a two tower apartment building. And so social distancing can be very difficult. Um, it's, it's, you know, just like living in Manhattan. Uh, so 
making this a mandatory thing, I think, has obviously been been really great because it's it's just taking the polarity option out of it, and you know it really brings it down to you don't have to be here. No one's forcing you to come to an establishment, but if you want to, these are the rules. Just like you have to wear a shirt and shoes. Right now, you have to wear a mask. I'm I'm hearing in my head. Fast times at Ridgemont High, of course. No shirt, no shoes, no mask, no dice. Aloha, Mr. Spicoli. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, I think and one, what, of the, one of the, in terms of the mask issue, not to interrupt, but um, I, I think one of the most reasonable things that I heard the other day, and I, I, I sort of, I, I read it and went, oh, that. That sums up in words exactly how I felt about this from the beginning, because up until recently, I have to say, I did not feel in my own building or on the property that I needed to wear a mask. I didn't think it was a necessary thing. Um, everybody has been there's not a lot of people in residence currently. Um, so it's that that's good. Uh, we had been shut down for so long. So people weren't going anywhere. Everybody were sheltering in place. And so I didn't really feel the need, but I wore it regardless. If I was going through the elevator in the hallways, going to walk the dogs, whatever, I just put one on. And it was only as a show of respect to those that felt differently. And I think that in this day and age, this is one of the things that we're we're not taking into account. We're not being self-disciplined and consider it to the fact that, yes, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but some other people are in fact scared. And perhaps you should do something a little selfless if you in fact don't feel you need to be doing this and be respectful to the fact that other people don't feel that way. And it at least offers them a bit of comfort and you have joined into a community and are joining society as a respectful human being to your neighbors. And I, I, I don't see what's so hard about that or, you know, and I don't certainly don't feel that my freedoms have been taken away in doing that. Um, and I think that we've become so goddamn self-centered about things that we're not, not just being decent to one another. It's, it's really kind of disheartening. Anyway, that's my rant about masks. I appreciate all of it. You're using a lot of big words, selfless and decent and respectful. And yeah, wow. I mean, every time I hear them, I think, wow, those are such novel concepts. And of course, I wish I didn't feel that way. But Read a book, you illiterate son of a bitch. (laughs) Step up your vocab. It's not hard, man. (laughs) Man, but seriously, though, I mean, I've, I've often thought about people that live in New York. And of course... I think frequently about people that are in underprivileged areas in cities like New York, where they are all just on top of each other in this giant apartment buildings. And what does happen when you need to get in and out of the elevator? And there are all those people that are not being respectful of others and considerate. That was my favorite word you used, considerate. Favorite because... You know, I've been saying from the beginning that big, one of the biggest problems with this whole thing is the amount that we need to trust one another to, you know, do the right thing and and be considerate and be respectful. And again, to Chris's point, you know, as soon as his area in L.A. and we've seen in in Nashville, you know, as soon as the bars opened up, they were 
fucking stuffed. And it's, it, it def- definitely doesn't speak well for those of us that are going back to work. And, and we're seeing these travel restrictions popping up now, travel restrictions potentially between states and the U.S., tra- possible travel restrictions between the U.S. and, and into Europe. I was talking to my buddy AJ down in Australia the other day. He said there are actual blockades between province, provinces there so that people cannot go from one into the other. And I mean, it, it made me think like we were in fucking like, like East Berlin or something. And, you know, somebody's erecting a wall. Like where, what the fuck is going on out there? Well, it is, um, it is fucked up. And it, and that's where, things start encroaching on your freedom. And unfortunately, we're doing it to ourselves because we're asking our leadership to somehow have magical past experience in order to lead. And when we talk about this as an unprecedented moment in time, that is absolutely fact. And it's unprecedented for anybody in this lifetime. And none of our leadership have dealt with anything like this. And they're, they're put in a, a really, really difficult position. Um, I, 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 I liken this the most to, to Andrew Cuomo. Love him or hate him. This guy got put into a double bind situation earlier in the pandemic and got lambasted for what a lot of people are saying is him being directly responsible for killing a whole bunch of elderly people in nursing homes. And there was an issue where nursing homes were refusing to take back uh, elderly patients that had been treated for COVID and had tested negative for it, ready to, to go back. And that the, the governor had to step in because in the background, there was some scam going on to some degree. There were unethical situations where these nursing homes were trying to fill that bed with someone with private health care as opposed to Medicare, Medicaid, because they could charge more. And, and it's a whole business to it. And so they're trying to give away that bed. Cuomo jumps in and goes, no, you can't do that. We have to protect our elderly. You, you have to be able to allow them to come home. This is where they live now. Well, unfortunately, there were also tests that were bad and they were giving false negatives. So here's a guy trying to do the right thing allows these elderly to go back rightfully and justified to their homes. And now those elderly are spreading disease like wildfire that we thought they didn't have. And they did. How, how does our governing leadership know how to handle that? And th- th- these are, these are situations that they, they just have never faced before. And at a level that is just outrageous and this goes for, for all of our leadership from, from the ground up, from, from business managers all the way up to the commander in chief. And it doesn't let anybody off the hook, but in the same vein where we talk about being considerate to one another, we also need to be considerate about our leadership and do what we can to help them. And in this vein, they are being put into double bind situations where they have no other resource other than to shut things down, which translates into having your freedoms being taken away, which then translates into a a feeling of patriotism, of rising up against a 
quote unquote, oppressive government at that point. And it just snowballs into something that really could have been mitigated by raw consideration of your neighbors and just being kind and gentle and considerate to trying to help, you know, and and you cook people up and then you open the floodgates and allow them to go somewhere and then expect them to govern themselves Clearly, we're incapable of doing that. So we're, we're, we're in the end putting these restrictions on ourselves because our government doesn't know where the fuck to go right now. It's crazy. Well, it's, it's, it, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, frankly. And it, far be it for me to ever take the pressure off our commander-in-chief, as I do refer to him as dear leader. But I, the reality is, aside from, and I mean, if he's done any number of things wrong. And I think consistency in showing compassion would have been the first thing he should have started doing that could have helped us, you know, go down the right path. But, but this is unprecedented. You know, we're dealing with a, a time where, you know, the, 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 the speed in which information gets shared across the internet. The internet is as much a problem here as anything else because all of a sudden there's so much information coming from so many different directions and even the same person, the second they have a thought that comes halfway out of their mouth, it's being treated as if it's like the next proclamation and and there's no, and, and it's impossible to establish consistency. It's impossible. There's, there's, a, few, there's a few major right? issues in, in our society and not the least of which is the fact that our quote unquote news outlets are are doing two things. They're 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 not news outlets, they're opinion outlets. Exactly. You know, even to the point of, of, of Fox News, their tagline being opinion done right. And mm-hmm. That if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about, and not, not, not about their, their political affiliation one way or the other, but about who they are as a company and what the, the product that they're producing is not made to be news. It is made to be fed to a like-minded audience in that regard. And the, the other thing that we have up against us is that we have had these news agencies turn into a 24-7 cycle. I was on a Zoom call uh, last week, and we, we were sort of joking around about um, the, the good old days of the 70s, as I'm dating myself, where there was a guy named Walter Cronkite that every night at 6 p.m. came on your TV and for 30 or, or 60 minutes spewed facts. There was no opinion. He just told the news from around the country and around the world that day, and that was it. And then your TV turned off at midnight. The national anthem played, and then it went into a test pattern. And that was it until about 5 or 6 a.m. Well, we, we don't have that. We have, we have a 24-7 cycle of media and entertainment that's constantly happening. And we can't, we, we, you know, just as we're expecting too much of our leadership, we're expecting a little too much of our news agencies who are there to do, to, they're running a business selling advertising, and they need to keep people engaged and doing that. And there's not enough new news to continue a 24 hour cycle. So you got to fill it with a lot of opinion. And so we're turning to these outlets for this stuff and, and we're all cooped up and have nothing else to do. So everybody's just so wildly focused on this and they're hanging on every breath because they're the, the world so desperately wants hope. And unfortunately that's, that just hope isn't really a great story. 
you know, tragedy sells a hell of a lot more. So, you know, having this doom and gloom constantly is just this constant cycle. And I, I think people are losing sight of that and, you know, forgetting that maybe that's not the spigot to be drinking from constantly, you know, to take a break from it, re- realize what that is. Um, you know, there's, you, you can drink from a stream, but you have to be careful because it could be a cow living up a mile up there, you know, shitting in it. <laughs> uh, yes, I think that show is called Naked and Afraid, um, and we've seen <laughs> what happens. Um, anyway, we're rambling about politics, and we, we actually said we weren't going to do that. So. I, I mean, I, I want to figure out some way to round that out before we move into your career. Like, what can we do to be more self-reliant? Uh, to, uh, you're right. The, the news, uh, the doom and gloom stories are the ones that sell. The, the Trump tweets are the ones that you can't help but talk about because, you know, mind blowing as they are, everyone feels something because of it. And that gives the news outlets clickbait. It's uh, more to, to, I don't know, more reason to tune in, more reason to tune out. Uh, I'll say this, you know, everybody wants to yell at Trump all day long and, you know, God bless him. They got every fucking right to it's it's a little insane, but nobody's ever really screaming so loud at these individual parties. You know, we've got a major election coming up, one of the most pivotal in our history. And we got two substitute teachers being proposed as the finest leadership you can get in the United States. You're telling me that out of all the bright and intelligent, trained management leaders in the United States, out of its entire citizenry, these are the two best that we're going to get this time around and that all the other choices we've had in the past decade, two decades. Those are those are the best. Yeah, I, I don't even. We need yeah. to start putting pressure on on these parties to really put some true leadership forward. I am with you on that a thousand percent. I yeah. I I mean, don't let's again. We should shift away from this, but I uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I I mean, anybody but Trump is not a platform. Um, it it might be. It, it God willing, it it could help win an election, but. Again, I feel like I'm having the same conversation over and over again where, you know, if if 30 percent, if only 30 percent of the voting population is going to vote for Trump. But only 60 percent of the total voting population is going to vote anyway, because the other 40 percent don't give a fuck about either of these candidates and think they're all full of shit and it's all bullshit and there's nobody to believe in and whatever, because there's any a number of reasons that people don't vote in general we still need to put somebody up against Trump who's going to get that other 30% of the voters. Is that Joe Biden? I'm not convinced. I, I, I'd like to think so, but I'm just not sure. And when we know that the Republican leadership is also going to continue to employ their gerrymandering tactics to minimize the number of just those 30% that are able to get to the polls, it still makes Trump the prohibitive favorite to win this election in my mind. And, and to your point, Patrick, I mean, h- how can we not do better? How are there not intellectual minds that are prepared to stand up and step up and 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 lead the and become the leader of the fucking free world? Isn't that a persuasive opportunity to be the leader of the fucking free world? 
Sounds pretty cool to me. I mean, it does, I'd give it a right? whirl. Patrick, I might just vote for you, but let's get through the rest of this interview first before we I declare. Will never make it to the vetting process, I assure you. Christine has the pictures. <laughs> well, I mean, I would tell I you that care. that's you know are probably a reason a lot of people won't step up the skeletons in their closet. But we've learned with the current leadership that it doesn't matter how many fucking skeletons he has if you're if you're somebody to believe in, they'll vote for you anyway. That's true. Anyway, so let's, let's yeah, let's let's actually jump off of that. I hope our listeners are all still with us. I appreciate their interest in uh, politics as well. But we're here to talk about you as a production designer. And uh, first, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about that in between growing up on Broadway and becoming the designer that you are today, how did that happen? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna purposely glaze over a little bit of the very beginning of it, leaving high school, I ended up um, doing some work for the government. And uh, that actually necessitated me to learn a bit of a trade in the entertainment field um, and on the technical side of things. And I really started to gravitate toward the lights. Um, I had a, I, it was all coupled with the fact that I had a weekend job at a, a DJ company, young kid, just, you know, getting some extra beer money, having a grand old time. And one thing led to another. I started working a lot more with the technical aspects at this company and um, became a, for lack of a better term, a bit of a production manager for them and helping out and started to be involved with the purchasing of equipment, which led me to have to deal with uh, lighting audio companies and so on. And I kept gravitating toward the lighting quite heavily and ultimately decided that that's where I wanted to go with all of this and, and learned the, the technical aspects of it. And in the end, uh, worked at a local lighting shop, sort of learning a lot of the nuts and bolts of it and ultimately went to work for a, a sales distribution company of lighting and audio products called Group One Limited and uh, based in Long Island. And they're still around to this day, cranking away. Uh, they, at the time, were the U.S. distributors for clay packy lighting, um, which was considered the, sort of the most expensive exotic Lamborghini of, of lights uh, and subsequently became a U.S. distributor for MA lighting out of Germany. And they're what is now the industry standard lighting control console, the Grand MA series and I became involved with the alpha stage software development of the Grand Abbey and then subsequently as group one um, moved away from that product line and another sales distribution company took that over I became a product specialist for them and uh, it sort of continued through there but my time at group one I was a uh, technical support specialist that primarily concentrated on the clay packy line of automated lighting. And what that did was put me in a position where I was to go out to the rehearsal times of tours to make sure that their setup and full installation went perfectly and that the all the, the gear was doing what it should do, get them into their full rehearsal and programming process just as, as there is support, and then move on to the next production. So I spent many years, not necessarily on tour, but jumping from tour to tour in each of their inceptions and uh, made a 
huge group of friends through the process in both designers and programmers. And in the end, decided what I wanted to do was just become a, a freelance programmer. I loved pushing the buttons and, and running the shows. And I started doing it here and there. I, um, through the, the course of all of this, I, my weekend job shifted and it, it led me to a completely opposite path, um, both out of the government sort of side of things and the lighting side into doing illegal raves for crime families in Brooklyn. And would spend, this is in the early 90s where the, the rave scene and underground rave scene is, is sort of all the rage um, you know, before we had giant EDM festivals and, and huge things like that. And uh, one thing led to another. I was considered sort of the most responsible one with dealing with these things. And I was uh, slowly groomed for a position in also being a money collector. Um, so for lack of a better term, I guess we, uh, I, I was basically a money collections agent for the mob for a little while um, and didn't really truly realize what I was being groomed for there uh, until it really hit me. And uh, I realized that that's absolutely not the direction I wanted to go. Um, they were quite keen on me being a part of that um, because I was pretty good at it. And I ended up shifting out of it gracefully and decided that what I really wanted to do was become a freelance programmer to do concerts and just concentrate on that. And so 1998, I ended up uh, leaving group one and started my own business as a freelancer um, and took off from there. Um, specialized in, at that time, there were lots of different consoles and controllers. Today, we for the most part, just use these grand MA consoles. Um, you know, of course there are others and, and they get thrown into the mix here and there, but it's not the industry standard other than MA. And back then it wasn't the case. There were lots of different ones and all the different lighting manufacturers had their own controller. And because I was involved in so many other productions up until this point and going to trade shows for Clay Packy and, and spending all this time with other sales representatives from other uh, moving light companies and in the industry. One of my brilliant ideas was that I figured I would just hit all of these guys up for them to send me one of their controllers or consoles and I'd become a subject matter expert in it so that they had somebody that they could call whenever they got some massive sale and couldn't get a programmer. Um, because at the time, some of these things were pretty obscure. And they were, a, a lot of these major sales, particularly for installations and things, were hinging on the fact that they would have to kind of do a loss leader of throwing in the controller and a programmer to make it all work because they were difficult to find, few and far between. So I, I actually made a, a pretty quick and thriving business as a programmer because I was one of the few people that knew how to use all of these various different consoles. Um, in, in one instance, I was, I actually got a, a project working for the Sultan of Brunei because I was the only person on the planet that knew had to knew how to use both a Martin case controller and a Pulsar masterpiece 108. And it was just like very old school, um, defunct consoles and controllers to this day. But back then, 
it was it was literally impossible to find someone that knew this stuff. So they, they were trying to only send one guy because they were trying to keep costs down, things like that. And I was the only one on the planet, apparently, that knew how to use both of these things. Um, so it paid off rather well. And of course, at the time, it, we the whole Hog 2 console came out, things sort of shifted uh, to that becoming a standard. And I learned that and through that ended up on more professional productions. And one thing led to another. And I was out in the world doing uh, tons of programming on shows all around, which was a really lovely way to, to sort of start a freelance career. Um, one thing I'd like to, to point out, Matt, um, an era when you did introduce me originally, the name of my current company is The Activity. Um, it not to be confused with the Academy. Uh, Academy is a company that I actually do get confused with a bit um, just because I have a, a background of uh, tactical weaponry to some degree. And uh, Academy is a what used to be Blackwater. And so pe- people tend to confuse me a little bit with, with that and just assume that, that's, um, that I'm involved with that. I am not associated with them in any way other than uh, doing some training. Well, I should say that that would be my failure to read, apparently, because I was staring at my notes, which specifically say the activity. Did I really say the academy? I, yeah, I apologize for that. Um, that is, uh, yeah, I will be I sure. I just don't to... want people getting the wrong idea. I no, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, wrong idea, right idea. I mean, we're talking to a production designer who's talking about tactical weaponry and mob raves and and i just have so many questions i mean <laughs> how does one gracefully break kneecaps as a money collector for the mob please i i, I was uh, not breaking kneecaps um that's not the preferred <laughs> method of negotiation uh <laughs> oh, really? um, no, I, I mean I, I, that i have to say that time in my life uh sets a tone obviously i mean how, how would it not um you're you're subjected to things that I, I really don't care to get to get into here. Um, the, the, the not pleasant ways of de- doing business, uh, but in that world, uh, apparently necessary. Um, certainly, having witnessed it, um, and but what what it what it did was show a extreme level of aggressiveness in following through to get paid. And this is something that, you know, and, and, and I'm not using this as uh, you need to be violent to do that. That's not that it was usually not the case in any of this. Um, but the the concept of negotiating and standing up and justifying things to people in a appropriate way of um, saying, you know, services rendered this this needs to be taken care of. Uh, there's a large portion of our industry, primarily with our artists that don't know how to do that. And they, they don't know how to um, just run their business properly, much less deal with the money collection side of life, which is such a huge part of it and, and often a, a laborious and a dreadful part of having to follow through running a business. But every business has that and has to deal with that. Um, most businesses employ a, a uh, accounts payable department, and a, sometimes a team of people to deal with that because it's such a bear. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of that in my upbringing uh, that 
molded how I approached business in general and why I wanted to be able to to create art, but also be able to run a business properly and in a in a way that protected the people that I had working for me as well. So, cause as things grew, of course, this is, you know, now the, the having the activity, it's, it's much more than just me. Um, you know, the concept of the activity was to take my name off of the name of the company. So it wasn't about this one man show anymore. It's about a team of people. And um, the, the, the original company that I had founded was Dearson design group. And that, that has now turned into more of a holding company for, the, my, my other business interests. Um, and the activity is the production design focused portion of the, the overall picture. And it is designed to be able to service other creatives and designers. It's not about me doing the show. It's a, it's a bit of a haven of being able to utilize the resources that we've built over the decades and present them for use to other designers. So it's, it's not just the internal shows that we do. Uh, it's also for everybody else. And we've, we've realized that we can become this sort of haven for people to allow them to focus on their creativity and take a little bit out the, the, the pressure off a bit to have to run themselves as a business and coach them into building their own brand and building their own business so that they they leave here not just with services rendered, but also with some mentorship and growth and being able to do a lot of this stuff themselves. Um, I, I've, I've always maintained the fact that I don't really look at people in my industry as competition per se, so much as we are colleagues in something and that there's certainly, well, under normal circumstances, plenty of work to go around and being able to encourage others coming up in the business to be able to, to run themselves as a proper business only assists in us being able to turn to them, knowing that they're capable of executing something that maybe we don't have the bandwidth to do and we can appropriately refer them. Um, so there's, there's a lot more to that, but the, that, that whole core of learning that in such a wild and weird, aggressive way in, in underground raves definitely set the tone, um, for being able to, to really just fight for your money at the end of the day, which ultimately protects all the people that you have around you. Patrick, do you think that has something to do with the age group or perhaps the experience? Like, obviously, I've noticed a trend lately with folks who are in programming and video, particularly, let's say they're much younger than what they once were. And one can attribute that to them growing up with video games, you know, and such more at their fingertips. Um, do you feel that, you know, like by providing these services, you're catering to that audience because they are so young they don't have the life experience to recognize how they could be better about getting paid or do you think it's more something that's just in the nature of our business that there is a problem there in uh, just like systematically that people don't necessarily want to quickly pay you a, at the job and get it's on an amalgamation them. of all of it i think um first and foremost you're, you're this is a business 
people get into this, um, one of the, one of the biggest, uh, issues that we face here at the company are some, we, we've, we've had a few bad apples that have begged to come work for us and we've given them the chance and they're, they're people that have only heard the stories and you can, you can attest to this because Christine, you were you know, in, in direct line of fire of my behavior on tour and uh, a very specialized situation in that regard, because we, we met when I was coming out of retirement to go back on tour for, uh, for an artist. And part of the deal of doing that was negotiated that um, they, they wanted me to stay and do this. And I was only willing to do it so long as it was fun. And I said, as soon as the fun is gone in this, there's no reason for me to be here anymore. And I'm not servicing how this works. And so it was a party at front of house all the time. And it was just a constant fun environment to be around for the most part. I mean, every job has its shit days. But people that only hear the stories and don't know about the hard work and reality that go into a company like this come into the company thinking, oh, it's just party time. And they have this true misconception of the fact that, that, you know, yeah, we work in entertainment, but we are not the ones there to be entertained. We are there to work in our specialized skill set to produce an overall product. And I, th- I don't think people really come into the business understanding that there is a whole aspect of this that is so unfun. It's not cool at all. And it is big business and you have to fight because there are lots of other people there that are more than happy to hang you out to dry as long as they can for whatever their self-serving purposes are. Um, The other side of this is that we have a, we're in the information age, which is a wonderful time to be around. I have, I have a saying that I, I hammer into all this younger generation when they, they, they come and ask me a million questions and they haven't researched anything. I said, it's the information age. Ignorance is a choice. You can learn anything on the internet. Doesn't matter. You want to learn how to cook a soft boiled egg. You can have that answer in six seconds on your phone in the middle of Bangladesh. It's an amazing time to be alive. It's allowing a younger generation to go on a YouTube and learn how to do this stuff. Now, the failure is that they're not necessarily teaching themselves the craft of, you know, if we're talking about lighting programming, they're not necessarily teaching themselves the craft of light and how to create a beautiful picture on the stage. They're teaching themselves how to technically operate a piece of equipment and do a lot of fancy stuff with it. And and it's not a slight to them in that regard. They're, They're doing these amazing things. And Nine times out of 10, I'll be at a show and, you know, the, the, the young guys, you know, sort of presenting his work to me, like, Hey, check it out. What do you think? And I'm going, I, I don't get it. Well, look at this chase that's running. And, you know, you look up in the air and you see the chase and then I look down at the stage and the talent's in the dark. And I said, well, you've, you've kind of failed the first thing. You didn't like the money and that has to be done first. And they, they're not learning those things. So, um, I, I think we're seeing this mass influx of young talent that are talented at a skill set and are capable of presenting themselves as quote unquote designers, but haven't necessarily learned or studied the art of design and how that works, much less than the business side of it. And 
I, I think they tend to get steamrolled sometimes. Um, you know, I've gone to great lengths to protect uh, some of these guys who have, who have become dear friends of mine uh, through the process and have uh, clearly been very, um, very thankful for the protection that I've, or advice that I've given them to, to steer clear of these pitfalls and, you know, certain, you know, maybe agencies, people in the business that I think, you know, hey, you need to be careful as you do this, make sure you're setting yourself up for success here because these people may have a reputation or whatever the case may be. Um, and I, I, I think we're, we're, that generation is, has this amazing ability and potential and also an amazing pitfall that they, they're not being educated upon. And they end up going through the school of hard knocks on that when it, it could have been avoided to some degree. Well, Patrick, I feel like we're barely scratching the surface right now, and we're already at the approaching the one-hour mark in today's podcast. Do you have time to stick with us for another hour to record a part two if we were to suspend part one here? Absolutely, yeah. Amazing. Well, with that in mind, to all our listeners out there, just want to say thank you for being with us for this first hour now. Patrick Dearson from the Academy, or excuse me, the Activity. God damn it, that's twice. Again. Fucked it up again. Here I was thinking in my head, it's the Activity, but I should also point out that Patrick is actually his a pseudonym. It's, 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 he is coming to us from a secure location. We are calling it Los Angeles and relating stories because the result of his mob ties and his his background in capping knees and what have you as a money collector, his real name. I, I mean, most people know him as Peter Grant, but you may or may not be able to, you know, find him under that either. You may know the stories, the legends, the ways in which he managed to get money for Zeppelin back in the day. Um, actually Joey Bag Donuts was how it went by. <laughs> God, good grief. The activity, the fucking activity, the activity, the activity. I'm going to get that in my head for part two. Everyone, Patrick Dearson. I am mortified by my own failure to get that right. Um, but uh, yes, um, to our listeners. Wow. Reset. Deep breath. Come on back in for part two, guys. We will be back shortly. Uh, until the next time, we appreciate you all. Patrick Dearson, The Activity. I am, what the fuck is my name? I'm not even sure anymore, but I got Dallas here. I got Banks here. And uh, unfortunately, we are missing Kyle today. He's dealing with a personal situation. Uh, we extend our best to him and to his family. Uh, but we will be back with part two right after this. Thank you all and good night. Good night.